Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. So, a couple of quick updates about the show just before we get to today's episode. Um, it's going really well. We've seen some really good growth. We're getting more followers and subscribers across the different channels. And we're also getting a really good reception from academics. A lot of the academics I've been reaching out to to come on the show have already seen some of our episodes. Um, Quentin Skinner, in fact, just reached out to me to say that he liked the Philip Pettit episode about republicanism. So it's going really, really well, and I want to just thank everyone who's uh, shared or forwarded or helped us grow. As we go forward and as we get a bit bigger, I am going to try and create a little bit of a budget for the show, and I'm going to do that on a suggested donation basis. So I want this show to be available to everyone. I don't want money to be a barrier to listening to it. Uh, But for those who can... I'm going to suggest a donation of $2 per episode, which I think is, you know, about reasonable, or whatever it is that feels appropriate for you. And I set that up on Patreon, which is a pretty common provider for these things, and it's actually a pretty cool tool. It allows a lot of um, independent or sort of smaller artists, whether it's podcasting or music or whatever, to generate some revenues from their product without having to do um, advertising or sponsorships or anything like that. So one commitment I'll make to all of you is I'm not going to do ads on this show. I think, like, breaking up an interview, especially, like, the type of interviews we do to tell you about a mattress or something, I think that... um, I think that will be to the detriment of the show. And this isn't something I'm going to go on about either. I'll just, at the beginning or at the end of every episode, just remind you all that uh, if you like the show, we suggest a donation of $2 an episode. And if you're not able to do that, then you can still support the show just by sharing and forwarding it. So please do check that out. It's really, really easy, by the way, to set it up. Um... And just check it out on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. I've also been broadcasting it on our social media. And if you don't follow us on Facebook or Twitter, uh, please do. It's nice to sort of see who's been listening to the show and get your comments and feedback and so on. So, that's my announcements. Today's episode, Dale Martin is back on, or rather, we're just continuing the same really long in-depth interview that we did which I'm breaking up into three parts. In the first part we discussed the history of early Christianity and particularly St. Paul. In this episode we're going to discuss the growth of Christianity from the beginning of the movement through to the Emperor Constantine and we consider various explanations for how this movement grew from maybe 20 people at the death of the founder through to something like 20% of the Roman Empire when the Emperor took it as his uh, personal religion, which is a really remarkable growth, and even perhaps especially for those of us who don't believe, it is incumbent on us to provide some sort of socio-historical explanation for that. So anyway, this episode kind of jumps in at the middle. We don't start with introductions, we just jump straight into the topic. So if you want the context to this episode, 
you're welcome to check out the first episode, last week's episode, uh, Paul and the Resurrection, if you don't care too much for context, or maybe you just don't trust us to deliver it to you, then, uh, and hey, I <laughs> wouldn't blame you for that, then you're more than welcome to just join us for this week's episode. From Christ to Constantine, with Professor Dale B. Martin. When, when does Christianity start showing up as a force in external sources? When do we start noticing it? With so we... Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, in 312. But if, if it... Constantine had not taken on Christ as his patron god, Christianity could have just dissolved into the history. But notice this also, not only did Constantine uh, promote Christ, Constantine ruled for a long time. He, he called together the Council of Nicaea, which is really where you can date the beginning of Orthodox Christianity. Um, and, had, and then Constantine dies after ruling for a long time. And then notice how his dynasty, which was, except for Julian, Julian the so-called apostate, who only ruled for two years and tried to destroy Christianity and tried to resurrect you know, paganism or the traditional religion, According, except for Julian, Constantine or one of his descendants reigned for you know a hundred years more, and you don't get so you have to have Theodosian at the end of the fourth century to actually have Christianity declared, you know, the religion of the Roman Empire. But presumably Constantine, I'm not saying it was the majority or anything close to that, but presumably it was a hell of a lot bigger than it was in the time of Paul. If, if in the time of Thessalonians, let's say, you have a few dozen house churches with 10 to 20 people in them each, maybe 500 people in this movement, it seems really like just statistically unlikely that the emperor of the world would find this really obscure sect and make it, it, it must have been like at least in some areas like 5 or 10% of the population for him to even well, have noticed yeah, you it. Get, you, get, you get sort of social, sociological type scholars who will continue to put out guesses, but you get widely disparaging things. And I don't, I think Rodney Stark, for example, who is trained as a sociologist and has published a lot in early Christianity, most of it, I think, not very good, and and I think partly he's been overly influenced by a certain kind of evangelical Christianity. He, a lot of his sociology of early Christianity, I think, is almost more apologetics. But he would he argues that there are certain aspects of Christianity, such as them teaching that you shouldn't expose infants, you should take care of the poor, you should take care of the sick, and he attributes a lot of these kinds of social and ethical issues 
uh, even theological issues to the early Christian movement well before Constantine. And he wants to put the growth of Christianity uh, to be kind of like the growth of, um, you know, uh, modern day uh, uh, church growth survey type movements. And he'll apply those kinds of modern methods and models to the antiquity. Well, I, I think he's a little bit too optimistic about how quickly it grew and how much it grew when. On the other hand, you get someone like uh, Ramsey McMullen, who I think is much more sober. And he kind of goes around the empire and he says, okay, how many people can we actually count who went to this council? Okay, if there are this many bishops, how many actual Christians would one bishop have, you know, be over in different places? And and he actually goes and looks at the canon lists and of, you know, uh, of uh, councils and creeds. And, and he tried, and then he also looks at physical representations. He says, how many people could have met in this church? Well, and he basically wrote a book in which he said, there clearly, according to some data, were more Christians, say by the third century. Um, there were more Christians who called themselves Christians and were trying to uh, worship than could have fit in what we know of the existing buildings. So where were they meeting? And he says, well, they were meeting outside. They were meeting in cemeteries. And they were, you know, he basically uh, wrote a whole book in which he tries to get the numbers of how many physical structures we have to jive with what other uh, population issues we might think. But they're just all across the there's all across the map because we don't have the data. I was going to just ask, I, I, I'm such a bloody empiricist. I want the number, like what percentage of the empire or even of the East was Christian in the time of Constantine? Was it 1%? Think, was well, it 5%? You'll get, get some people saying 25%. That feels high. Nobody, nobody will say 50%, I don't think. Right. But they might say 25%. And I just, I just don't know. It could have been 25%, but... 25% would reply, imply a pretty remarkable growth from these 500 people in house churches. Yes. But what if Constantine had not converted? I hesitate to use the word converted because that implies that he was baptized immediately, and we don't really think he was baptized until his deathbed. But he, 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 he took Jesus Christ as his patron deity. What if he had not done that in the year 312? We just... This is kind of, how do you write history backwards? I mean, that's one of the all-time hypotheticals. That's like up there with Hitler winning the Second World War or something, exactly. is, is, is what if Constantine doesn't convert. But see, this is the way I think you have to do the question, because I think it's a mistake. Uh, a lot of people, especially Christians, want to say there was something almost inevitable about Christianity to become this big world religion. And so the last lecture I always give in my class is how did this little group, that started as this little ragtag bunch of right. followers. How did it end up as a world religion, which I use with big scare quotes, because right. the very term world religion was not invented until around the year 1900. Right. And when it was, when it was, my friend Tomoko Masuzawa has written a whole book explaining where did the rise of the notion of world religions come from? Well, it came from a Protestant attempt to compare non-Christian religions to Christianity. And originally, the only world religion was Christianity, and then they decided to let Buddhism be part of it. But you couldn't have Islam, and you couldn't have Judaism, because, of course, those were ethnic religions, mm -hmm. ones for the Jews, ones for the Arabs. And so all these are the kinds of things. But anyway, I, I say you, you could actually say that Christianity wasn't a world religion really until the 19th century, because that's when you had the big missionizing impetus of uh, both – you had Catholic missions going on in the Americas and some places and in China a little bit with Jesuits in say the 1600s. But really it was the 19th century that with Protestant missionary activity in Africa and Asia that you got the real 
planting of Christianity. So now, for example, people will point out Christianity is growing much, much faster in Africa than it than it's dying in the West. So Christianity will be an African religion in right. less than yeah, generations. I guess I guess I stand corrected. I was using the phrase world religion just to imply like a, a, a meaningful section of Roman society, which is you, you're right. The, the phrase world religion has completely different connotations. But, but you then, can't say when did when did Europe become Christianized? Right. Well, I mean, it's a process from like the twelve people who thought claimed to have seen a resurrected Jesus to the what. Five to twenty-five percent at the time of Constantine to eventually the the yes. majority, right? But that's then a, that's a historical question because then you can actually you have data that you can say, okay, when when did when did when, when was when could we call Britain Christian? Right, but then we're getting a bit closer. We have more historical sources there. But what I was going to say was was staying with the Constantine thing. Um, if you say, let's just assume for the sake of argument, it was 20%. We don't know that. Just just assume it. Um, it. Actually, the question gets more interesting when you take away the religious aspect of it. So I think a lot of Christians will say, well, why did it go? Let's just assume it went from 20 people to 20% over that 200, 300-year time gap. Well, the Christian can look at it and say, well, it was the movement of the Holy Spirit or some such. But actually, once you take the religion away and you just approach it from a cold atheist perspective, the question becomes even more interesting. If, you, if, if it doesn't become, well, the innate truth of the movement, it was inevitable that it would... If it was something that could, like you say, have just fallen by the wayside of history, then we have a huge sociological task on our hand to ask what it was about the beliefs of this movement or the leaders of this movement that made it so compelling that it went from 20 to 20 percent and that's a really fascinating question well and that's actually where you get serious debate among scholars now so but of course see i'm i'm more of a new testament scholar biblical scholar than a scholar of late antiquity although i have published on late antiquity but you do have people who are saying uh it was the birth of the hospital um, monasticism. Some people have said that the the later hospital came out of the Roman military uh, camps. And uh, a guy's written a very interesting book. He was actually a PhD student here at Yale, and his dissertation at Yale was arguing that no, the hospital actually was a growth out of monastic practices. The monks had sick, you know, areas in their monasteries, and that's where you trace back uh, the birth of the the hospital. Is to monasticism. Well, then you've got the a lot of people. Other people would say the very ascetic movement of monks and nuns and mon monasteries and that sort of thing, which becomes hugely important in the you know fourth, fifth, sixth centuries. Well, that that also changes society, um, and it impacts on on money. You know, it impacts on it takes care of families who, if you have. Uh, Primogeniture, just want, you know, the oldest son inheriting everything. But what do you do with your second and third sons? You know, well, the second one maybe becomes a lawyer. The third one has to become a monk. You know, that's just what you do. And so, uh, and that could impact the growth of Christianity. Other people have said it's it was early Christians, even as early as the 200s, who were um, arguing against abortion, arguing against child exposure, uh, arguing against infanticide, and encouraging. Uh, at least part of Christianity, in spite of the, mon the monks and nuns, were encouraging childbirth. So do you have then that? Do you have, for example, just Christians uh, practicing uh, hospitality? And that is a social thing that starts pulling people in. Anybody who's studied 
sociology of religion, even in the modern period, will know that the growth of movements is due as much to what we would call non-religious or at least non-theological reasons as anything else. I mean, look at Mormonism, the Church of Latter-day Saints. It grew from, you know, the early 19th century uh, to a huge worldwide movement now. Uh, I would say that a lot of that growth was very uh, much due to a certain kind of ideology of except they, they, they appropriated, not from the New Testament such, but from the Old Testament, certain militant views of what the church is supposed to be. And it, they combine the household with the church. In fact, the church basically becomes just a series of households led by head of the household men. And it's that that appeals to a strong element of conservatism in the Americas at the time that I think leads to the growth of, of the Mormon church. Um, now, you, you can't say that's not religious because, of course, they, it's in their scriptures and it's part of what they teach. It's God's will. But it also has sociological driving forces. So you're, you've really hit on the idea of what happened between the year 100 hmm. and the year, say, 600. And we have very little data to go on for the first 200 years of that <laughs> You know, right. four century span. So we're just sort of left to guess. And I think this is almost like, because you can even go like, what the hell happened in the first hundred years? What the hell happened in Paul's ministry? I I have a gut feeling that, 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 that there was a tenfold increase in the size of Christianity over the course of Paul's ministry. I can't evidence that. That's just how I read those letters. Um, but it, I think it's kind of like a historical Rorschach test, you know, where you get like the ink blot, and what you read into it says more about you than yes. it does about what's in the page. So you because can I, do. My Rodney Stark's publications, in my view, yeah. I read Rodney Stark's. So he's trained as a sociologist. He's a PhD mm. in sociology of religion. And I first knew him when he was publishing what I consider really good stuff in sociology of religion. But as soon as he's turned his notions to the growth of the early church, I started saying, ah, this is an evangelical growth church growth guy mm. is trying to read back into the ancient sources his own church growth ideas right and then but you could also go the other way and be someone like me who's quite interested in the history of ideas and how actually people getting behind a particular ideology or notion or way of explaining the world can be very powerful historically and you can say well look you've you've got this Paul guy saying something that centers around freedom and liberation to people who lived in a huge slave society, and a lot of people were ex-slaves or their fathers were ex-slaves, in some way that really must have spoke to their psychological and spiritual needs. And maybe that's the explanation. But yes, one of the one of the pioneering books that kind of approaches it that way with Paul's churches is my um, mentor and advisor, Wayne Meeks. He published a book around 1983. It was a very new kind of attempt to use social, so, sociology and anthropology, cultural anthropology, to analyze Paul's churches. He published a book called The First Urban Christians. And the, he's doing precisely that sort of thing. He's saying, what was it about Paul's message, about his theology, or about the symbols he used, that would have appealed to what kind of person in an ancient Greek city? And he tries to correlate status, as people's social status, people's educational level, um, with, you know, images of Christianity, like being a slave of Christ or being, you know, in a household of Christ. Or, and, he, and he sort of, he, he basically said that there's a certain kind of uh, person who would have had status dissonance in his or her life. That is, maybe had a high education, but not very wealthy, 
or maybe had uh, you know had was a Jew who but who uh, had uh, lots of money so could buy a bit of prestige in town. And he says it's precisely certain kinds of people that he thinks make Paul's converts, and explains Paul's language. Right, because it is weird. It does the 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 slaves of Christ thing in particular does read weirdly to a modern eye. Could we dig in here? Could you say maybe just a few words about the nature of slavery in the Greek and Roman world? Because this wasn't a side thing. This was a huge aspect of the society, right? Right. And of course, that's what my first book, my dissertation, which became my first book, is called Slavery as Salvation, which is a little bit misleading because I was trying to explain two different aspects of Paul's language about slavery. One in which he claims himself to be a slave of Christ. Why would he do that? Some people said, oh, it's a mark of humility. And I said, no, it's, it's clearly not a humble sounding phrase. He's, he's boasting about being a slave of Christ. So I said, what was it about slavery in antiquity that could have called slavery as a metaphor to be a positive image rather than a negative image um, or an, an image of power? And then I also said the second half of my book, I said, Paul also those, talks about himself in First Corinthians as being a slave of the very people he's leading. He says, I'm your slave. I'm a slave of all. I'm a slave of everyone. Well, what did that mean? Why would he use that language? And so I basically said that in the ancient world, it mattered less that you were a slave than who you were a slave of. If you were a slave of Caesar, then you could be a very, very high level bureaucrat. You could be very wealthy. In fact, some of the wealthiest people and the wealthiest men in the first century around the time of Nero were imperial slaves. They were slaves of Caesar and they ran bureaucracies. And so they amassed great amounts of wealth and slaves of their own and even free persons of their own. So I said, being a slave of, of Christ would have sounded to people like being a slave of Caesar if you have the requisite uh, uh, honorary feeling for Christ himself. Uh, so that explains why slave of Christ is actually a term of honor and power and authority. And Paul uses that to establish himself as not Christ, but Christ's immediate bureaucratic representative. On the other hand, when Paul's talking about, I'm your slave, I'm a slave of all, I've become, I've become a slave of everyone, he's actually taking a, what was a democratic political metaphor because certain um, advocates of the democracy in 5th century Athens, the, the democracy in Athens, uh, the politicians, and these were called demagogues. Well, the, the word demagogue just comes from the Greek for a leader of the people. Uh, it didn't have a negative meaning necessarily, except when Plato or used it or something like that. But certain political politicians were arguing for the democracy against more conservative Athenian politicians who were arguing for monarchy or oligarchy or something else. And they would call themselves slaves of the people. And then they would appropriate certain things like I become all things to all people. I dress, I may be a person from the upper class, but I dress down. Uh, sort of like, you know, modern American politicians. George W. Bush comes from an elite background, but he tries to, you know, walk in a Texas swagger and talk with a Texas twang. Well, Athenian politicians would try the same trick, and I identified that as a political trope called the demagogue topos, so the, demagogue, the demagogue commonplace. And Paul is actually appropriating this in 1 Corinthians to portray himself as being from the upper class but lowering himself for the sake of gaining converts to Christ. So the, all of these things, though, show that the slavery, even as a metaphor, was highly complex in the ancient world. Right. And you get stuff even before Greece and Rome, like people in ancient Egypt used to talk about being slaves of the pharaoh, and they clearly 
didn't mean anything bad by it. No. I mean, it would sound weird today, even the most weird and sycophantic of Trump's cabinet wouldn't call themselves slaves of the Donald. It would just... Exactly. <laughs> it would just sound odd. But they exactly. did it back then. Um, yeah, no, go fact, ahead. In fact, you, you, you talk about Egypt. And there are a lot of ways slavery works as a trope in Near Eastern societies before Greece that are similar to but not exactly like the things that I've pointed out. And so slavery in Near Eastern, like Babylonian and Persian societies, slavery occurs as all kinds of different metaphors, and many of which are very positive. So the Hebrew word evid in the Hebrew Bible is used very positively quite a bit. Prophets are uh, evid, they're slaves of Yahweh. Um, that's a Near Eastern context. It means a little bit different when you get into democratic Greece because you have new ways of using slave language in political commerce. That is it's still different in Rome because slavery in the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire is different from Greek slavery. For example, um, if you're a slave of a Roman citizen and you're freed by the normal means of manumission in a, from a Roman citizen, then you automatically become a Roman citizen yourself. So that never happened before. You didn't. You couldn't use slavery as a way to move up in society. But in Roman slavery, because of the particular legal situations and social situations of the patron-client structure and the way slaves are, have a different legal kind of status in Roman law, uh, and I argued this also, slavery for some people actually could be used as a status of improving category. You could go through slavery and be, because if, if you're freed by a Roman citizen, then you are a Roman citizen yourself. Now you're a freed man, not a free man. So freedom in the ancient world is also much more complex than it is for us. There are free people, there are freed people, and then there are slaves. So if you're if you're manumitted by a Roman citizen, you become a freed man, not a free man. But your children, when they're born, they're born born Roman citizens. So they're up to even higher status than their father, you see. Right, so he's using the experience of manmission, of release from slavery, which must have been a very powerful psychological experience for people who went through it, and presumably many of the people he's preaching to did, as a metaphor yeah. for some sort of spiritual salvation. But then I'm going to just do two quotes, one from Galatians and one from Romans, in the, that seem to be quite contradictory. So there's Galatians 3, where he says, we were under the custody of the law locked up until the faith would come and be revealed, and... Um, skipping ahead a little to five, for it is the freedom of Christ that has set us free. Stand free then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. So you're, Christ is releasing you from sin and the law, and then you're finding freedom, which is a man-mission model. But then right. in Romans, it seems to be contradicted. This is Romans 6, 15. I won't read all of it. But he says, you're slaves to sin, but not to grace. And it's almost like a transfer of ownership model where he's saying, you were a slave to sin, now instead become a slave to Christ. And that's much better because if you're a slave to sin, that ends in death. And if you're a slave to Christ, that ends in life. But th those seem to be two different structural models, one of release, one of transfer, and two quite different moral visions. Right, or is there a reconciliation there? Well, that, that, that's just that's just because um, slavery is so complex in the ancient world that you can use it for a lot of different ways that even sound like they're contradictions. I don't think there's any contradiction in Paul's thought about it. Um, but yes, um, 
And it also brings up something that I wanted to say about the difference in the modern notions of freedom and ancient notions of freedom. Um, modern notions of freedom are very much um, linked to an individualism and an abstract notion of freedom. If you're free, you're free. No, I don't think I don't think Paul ever thought about that freedom that way, nor did he ever. I don't think anybody else did. I think that their notions of freedom was always a socially constructed constraint. You're only free in relationship to something else. So Paul will often talk about you, you're, you've been freed from sin so that you can be slave to God or something like that. So you're only free from a particular thing and you're freed for something else. So you're never just free in the abstract. You're free in relation to someone or something else. And Paul uses all sides of that. So when he says, notice he, said, he, he, he doesn't say you're freed from your slavery to sin. Now you can do whatever you want to. No, no. you can't you want to because you're enslaved to Christ or enslaved to God or enslaved to something good you know uh, or even if you're he sometimes will use say not saying you're a slave to this but you are freed for this you're freed to this and so uh, being the very notion of freedom in the ancient world doesn't mean what it has meant since the enlightenment to the modern west and it's always because they always thought of everyone there was no such thing as individualism, really, in the ancient world. That's much later. Like, yeah, you're, maybe, you're so, yeah. You're so embedded. Everything is embedded. And everyone is embedded. And you can't, so for example, when people, modern people get in these really worried things about, especially people who aren't Christians, they will say, well, if God foreordained us, me to be a Christian, and foreordained this, which the Bible, of course, teaches, and a lot of theologians would say, you are predestined to believe in God and to be saved. Well, that doesn't that destroy free will? And, you know, the ancients don't think that way because they think of any person who's free is only free to make decisions in a certain context. Uh, so some theologians will say, put it like this. Imagine yourself as an ant on a basketball. Right. You're free because you can decide to go to the right, decide to go to the left, straight, turn around, but you'll, you can't escape the plane of the basketball. Right. And that's the way humans are in Christian theology. We can't escape the being of God. So we can both talk about our free will and insist that we do have free will. But that doesn't mean we can do literally anything because we are constrained by the being of God. And that's the way Paul thinks of freedom. Paul thinks of freedom only in a social context. You are free to be maybe a free citizen of the body of Christ but if you try to get out of the body of Christ, that is not an expression of freedom. You only can be free in a constrained system because that's just what human nature is like. Yeah, and you're right. The, the, I would say there's three or four big ideological pillars on which sort of, I hate to use the word the West, but the, 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 the Western v sort of view is based. Um, one is freedom. The other is individualism, which comes in much later. I would argue pre-enlightenment, but like high, high Middle Ages at yeah. best. Like maybe in England in like the 14th century, you're beginning to get something like it. Um, the other is rationality and reason, um, which are modern ideas of that coming way down the line. And then there's also a sort of idea of like property rights and ownership that sort of works between all of them. Um, but freedom's the first. But even, okay, so Paul's using a conception of freedom which is divorced from because they don't exist yet, 
modern notions of the individual and certainly the modern liberal stroke libertarian way of looking at the world as like atomized individuals floating around wouldn't even make sense to the guy right um but he is still using a conception of freedom that's more advanced than what you would find in the old testament say right in the old testament it's more of just a descriptive this is your legal status. You are the free, or you're the slave, or the the the, the, uh, the Israelites are enslaved in um, Egypt or Babylon is just a descriptor. Whereas Paul's using it in a more aspirational, in a more social, in a more dynamic sense. Or am I reading more into the texts than is there? I wouldn't. I wouldn't use those adjectives myself. I would just say Paul is filtering. Paul can't be read unfiltered from both Greek and Roman mm. society and culture. Um, just, you know, think of the, t- think of how notions of freedom and the, and the person and the city, the polis, mm. notice how it changed so radically after the democracy in Athens right. and other democracies. Athens wasn't the only democracy, but it's just the most famous and one we have most evidence for. But you can't even think of the third century BCE, uh, the Hellenistic city-states, uh, Alexandria, Antioch, you know, you can't even think of what notions of freedom would have been like had they not been the successors of the Athenian ex- experiment of democracy. Right. The very notion of freedom gets is really reshaped by democratic notions. And democratic democratic notions survive long after democracies no longer exist. There was no true democracies in Paul's day. But you can see these traces of democratic thinking, and like, like, like I said, the slave topos of the, dem, the democratic politician. Paul gets that because he has a rhetorical education. He had to learn how to give speeches in different political situations and blah, 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 blah. So he picks up stuff. And I don't think Paul had a classical education, uh, that is to say classical Greek. Or I don't think he probably ever read Homer or Hesiod, those kinds of things. But when he was reading Isaiah or Jeremiah, he was reading them in Greek translation. Mm. Always. So he's filtering even. So what you've got is the what you described earlier was I would call those Near Eastern notions. Right. And then you get the democracies, the Greek democracies, and they just change the world. And then they set up democracies all over the Eastern Mediterranean and the West Mediterranean. Marseille, Marseille in France was a Greek colony, you know, and it's way in the West. And then then things change again when you have Rome, because Rome learns from Greece. But then everything's filtered through the Roman Republic, Mm. even the later empire. And then when you get really deep into the empire, what I've argued is that you get uh, notions, brand new notions again, which introduce a hierarchy and monarchical idea and the hierarchy of society and the king. By the time you get to Constantine and Eusebius, you no longer have anything remotely like a Greek democracy or a Roman Republic. You have an empire. So there's... We should close soon, but there's one reading of this I've always really liked, and maybe it's a slightly idealised version, whereas freedom through that process that you've described almost becomes like an ideological seed that's dormant, but it's always there and can always reflower. So you have, like you say, in the ancient Near East, you have slaves and you have freed persons, but it's not a value, it's not a participatory ideal, then in Athens most notably, but also in other places like Thebes and so on, it is and it becomes something that's alive and active and that people are willing to fight for and then that flowers into an institutional expression in the demos, in the democracy. Yeah, but and, and, and analyze this, the poems of Solon, for example, mm. legendary giver of Greek laws, right. 
And uh, the overthrow of the tyrants, the overthrow of the kings that become then celebrated in poetry hmm. and speeches, that's when you start getting this eleutheria Greek. That What that means is we're going to be a Greek polis that is, has no king. We have no king. That's what makes us eleutheria free. And that's when you get the language of it. And of course, that is taken up by the Romans in libertas. Right. And what you don't get is individual freedom, but what is in libertas, and it is in the Greek, is the idea of non-domination, the idea of sovereignal freedom, of self-rule. Um, but then... so for Rome, that, for Rome that's, that the rallying cry for that is only basically for the upper class, because right. Brutus and Cassius, they're the sons of freedom when they assassinate Julius Caesar. But they never intended to have every person under the control of the Roman Republic around the empire all of a sudden have their own freedom. They just meant the oligarchy. Right. right. And the same with, with Athens, is it was only, what, about 10% of the population that were participatory within the demos, and then there were freedmen, slaves, foreigners, stuff like that below them. But then tracing it through, you get this idea, like I said, I like the idea of a seed, something that's dormant, something that's latent, and the seed survives past the death of the institutional expression. You, you get the collapse of Athenian democracy, the Roman Empire transitions into something that's much more monarchical. But you still have this ideal that survives in Western thought, large, in, in some part because of Paul and people like him, because it survives in Christianity as well, that is always just there and has the potential to, to reflower and to re ignite those forms of institutional expression. That's a very well, idealized read on that bit of history, but... In that grand narrative, you have to give a very strong place to both Luther and Calvin. Right. And then the Anabaptists, Zwingli, and the Anabaptists, because that's, you know, Luther really grabs onto freedom. Of course, what he means is freedom from the law. But what he means by the law is not what Paul meant by the law. What he means is freedom from law in itself, that is... Any legal requirement, but which is Luther, Luther was a huge admirer of Paul, right? Yes, and misreader. Okay, but then, then that's weird. If we take that grand narrative, which I think there's some plausibility to, however big and idealistic it sounds, you have this seed that's remained dormant for over a thousand years, in, in buried in literature and whatever, that then reignites with the Reformation. And, you know, just compare the way... Compare Calvin to Luther, because Luther basically ended up arguing politically for um, kings. And they don't call kings. They were called, you know, what the German term for the different governors of the different heirs of Germany, but princes, I guess. Calvin, though, took a lot of ideas from Luther, but then he went back and took notions of the ancient polis. And so he wanted to make Geneva into its own political thing and its own expression of what liberty was, which is not the same thing as Luther. So even Luther and Calvin, who are, you know, playing back and forth, they're still using slightly different notions of what liberty means and its relationship to political structures. In closing, then, what's the final... I mean, maybe there isn't one, and it is just one of these historical Rorschach tests, but... What's the final historical verdict on Paul? Because 
I mean, I would say, and this is as someone who is not approaching it from the place of Christian belief, that what we can say is there was this man, this educated Jew, who seemed not to make it a world religion, I retract that phrase, but to get it out of the nosebleeds, to take a thing that had maybe a few dozen followers to something that had hundreds, maybe thousands, and in so doing, to, to, for, to transmit and to further plant this ideological seed that then thousands of years down the line is going to shake up the world at its very foundations. He, he's a man of quite extraordinary historical importance, in my view. I'd be interested to know if you agree with that and what your ultimate historical bottom line for this man is. Well, Paul is very important. I, I try not to make Paul... You know, a lot of people would say Paul is the founder of Christianity. Right. Jesus was a Jewish prophet. And you wouldn't have Paul without... You wouldn't have Christianity without Paul. I think I think that's saying too much because there's just so much... <clears throat> I don't think Paul founded the church in Rome. I don't think Peter founded the church in Rome. There were unnamed Jews who took the message of Jesus to Rome and founded the churches there. So a lot of unnamed early followers of Jesus are lost to us to history. But I do think that some things that Paul seems to have been rather innovative um, are super important for some the success of his mission. One of which is that he figured out a way to bring Gentiles into the church without making them fully Jewish. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to keep the Torah. I, I don't think, I think that immediately enabled a lot of people who were drawn to the Jesus movement to be able to take it in. They, because they didn't, they could be Israelites in a sense, because Paul still talks about them being part of Israel in his letters, but they didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to keep the law. They could still eat pork if they wanted to. That was huge. He's, Paul, at least for his churches, settled that question, that you can be a Gentile, you can be a former Gentile, because he still doesn't talk about a mess Gentile, but you can be a, you don't have to become literally a law-abiding Jew to be a member of this body. And I think that was very unusual at the time. Um, the second thing Paul did was he was a great organizer. The very fact that he saw his churches as all being a network and linked them together by letter writing. See, that's very innovative. Jewish synagogues didn't do this. You know, the, Paul's model could not have been Jewish synagogues. Because they didn't see themselves as – they didn't send emissaries all around and write letters to each other trying to influence each other's behavior and trying to maintain contact. And they didn't raise money. See, like Paul. Paul was raising money for, from all of his Gentile churches to support the Jewish church in Jerusalem. That also shows that he has this vision of one church that embodies the whole world, not ethnicity. So all of these things Paul is – pretty innovative about. And notice, none of them are sort of are directly readings of theology. They're organizational aspects. And so those are the things I think Paul uh, deserves a great deal of credit for, for um, turning what was a Jewish movement into what potentially could be a universal movement. And then in organizing it structurally with letter writing and then, of course, he leads the way to the later invention of having bishops and priests and deacons as the three-tiered uh, hierarchy structure, which you already see in the letters of Ignatius around 110, but you don't see that everywhere. 
But then by the third, fourth century, that becomes the structure for Catholic Christianity. And I, I think that's also super important uh, for the growth of Christianity later. You said earlier you think Christianity doesn't happen if not for Constantine. Does it happen if not for Paul? I don't know. I think that we, we don't know enough. Mm. Um, you know, if, if Paul, well, but see, even then, it's also the way Paul was used in the second century. Mm. Because you could easily have seen that if what we used to call the Gnostics, let's call them the Valentinians, mm. who they take Paul as their apostle. Um, and they emphasize, as, for example, they argue that the resurrection of the flesh and blood is not doctrine. They say, because Paul said it wasn't. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Also, Paul was an ascetic uh, sexually. And, and the, the later Gnostics would take Paul as their hero. Well, what had happened if people like Tertullian had not been able to redeem Paul from the Gnostics? Then what we would have as Christianity later would be something very, very different from what it looks like now. It would look like sort of California New Age religion. So, I don't know. You see, I think I think Paul himself can't be credited with all of it just because how you interpret Paul mm. becomes a hugely important issue in the second century. And how you interpret Paul has always been his most defining feature. Where does the, the quote about him, pro, Protean, right? Protean, yeah. That was uh, Wayne Meeks, my advisor again, the Protean apostle. Meaning the, the ever-changing. The... He, changes, he changes constantly. Like Proteus, when they, they were trying to throw him overboard, he kept changing into a dolphin or into a fish or into a monster or something else, and they, they could never throw him overboard because they couldn't kept, catch him. Where do, you, where do you fall with that? Do you, 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 we said earlier about Plato, people either love him or hate him, and you're, you're not, you don't fall into it. Do you have an intuitive gut on Paul? Is he... Well, I often say, people say that, you know, I've spent so much of my life reading and publishing on Paul and thinking about Paul. And they say, if there was some person in the ancient world or, or the past that you would really like to have a beer with, I'm sure it, for you it must be Paul. And I say, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine him as the kind of guy who has a decent sense of humor and I want to hang out with in a bar. I do find him, uh, you know, excruciatingly fascinating just mm -hmm. because, as you know, he's he seems to contradict himself. He's, he's, he's constantly changing. Um, I think he was brilliant. And I think that he's, uh, I think the very fact that we only have seven letters from him, and some people would say that, you know, even some of those letters are edited together from different letters. So maybe we just have fragments of 10 and they're letters. Not, and they're not long. I reread, I think, all but one of them in preparation for this interview, and it took like two hours. No, they're not long. You can, it can get, easily get it done. Um, so I, I, I think Paul is fascinating. I do think he's important, both for the growth of Christianity and for the growth of uh, so much religion and philosophy later. Um, I don't like uh, what I consider overemphasizing it and saying that Paul was the founder of Christianity or, or the founder of the West, which is a lot of some people will say. I think that it's very much, partly because I've been so much in my career trying to situate Paul very firmly in the first century. Mm. Which is the sort of uh, George Bernard Shaw critique of him, that Jesus was just like this hippie who got crucified and then Paul has to go and spoil everything. Right. Right. 
Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Next week, we'll do the final instalment of this series, where me and Professor Martin discuss our own personal beliefs. Professor Martin will defend a view of Christianity as theologically true, even if many of the specifics are historically untrue, and I'll defend and discuss my own atheism. That's a really valuable conversation, and I really enjoyed it, so I hope you'll, um, I hope you'll return to us for that. And if you are enjoying this show, and you got to the end of it, so hopefully you are, um, again, we suggest a donation of $2 per episode, and you can set that up really easily on our Patreon page. So please do check out our website or our social media for more details on how to do that. If you're not able to donate but still want to join us in bringing public philosophy and engaged discussions to the wider world, then you can also support by sharing, forwarding, tagging friends, and any support, be it a donation or be it sharing, is much appreciated. We've really grown this from nothing to a really cool project, and I'm really grateful for anyone who's taken the time to help us do that. So, thank you. And then, yeah, until next week when Professor Martin returns, then after that we have a plethora of interesting guests. So, follow us on Facebook or Twitter to get the announcements about who's coming on next. Apart from that, until next time. 